0: So we all love to tell stories to people, right? Uh, And I don't know about you, but when I tell stories, especially when I think about stories that I want to tell my son, especially when he gets a little older and might remember them, though I like to tell stories, I also, if I'm honest, I leave some details out, right? Like I've told you many times, I'm a big Panthers fan, right? I'm a big Carolina Panthers fan. And the reality is they're not very good. But I'm going to tell my son about the two times, Lord willing, more in the future, two times we've been to the Super Bowl. I'll probably leave out that we didn't win either of them. But hey, we went to the Super Bowl, right, son? We have a team we can support. Or, you know, maybe, uh, maybe for you, you've had other stories. Maybe you've met someone, like a really big celebrity, and you want to share that. So me, I have. I've met a celebrity. And so I'll probably tell my son, yes, son, I've met someone. He's on TV and it's a big deal. I'll probably leave out that it was Pat Sajak from Wheel of Fortune because that's not very exciting at all, but you know, hey, it was a celebrity and son, I met him and I got a picture with him. It was a big deal. It's funny though, right? Like we tell stories to people and sometimes we do leave out details, whether it's on purpose or, or not. And, and one of those is, is a Bible story. There's a lot of Bible stories actually, but I think maybe the one that is the biggest perpetrator is the story of Noah. That in the story of Noah, we tell about all these cute furry animals, right? We we put it in our nurseries. If you did, no shame. It's okay. It's okay. The animals, they are cute. I get it. I get it. But we also leave out the details of like, hey, millions, if perhaps billions of people also died, right? Like that's not part of the story. It's not like James, I love you, son. And there were these two by two animals and everyone died. Good night. I love you. Right. Like, that's not how I put my son to sleep. I actually do joke about that. But Kristen's always like, no, we're continuing. Uh, And rightfully so. Uh, But we it's interesting, right, that the story of Noah is this big story, frankly, of destruction, of death, of judgment. And ultimately, though, like, if that really is the story and if we're leaving out details, what is the story actually about? Is it about animals? Is it is it about a big old boat or is it perhaps about something else? Well, last week in, on, on Easter, we started a new series in Luke 24 of on the road, as Jesus is on the road with the two disciples. You can see it even in the graphic. and there, you see on the road that Jesus tells them what ultimately every story in the entire Bible is about, including Noah. What does he say in Luke 24, uh, verse 27 and 44? We, we saw verse 44 already. Jesus says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Moses meaning the author of the first five books of the Bible, and and then the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the whole Bible, the Old Testament specifically is what he's talking about, the things concerning himself. And then verse 44, again, we heard it already. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, did you see that? Everything written about me in the law of Moses, Again, the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, that's the minor and the major prophets prophets in your Bible. And then the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, we as uh, 21st century Western readers, we don't pick this up, especially in the Protestant church. But here, what Jesus is actually doing is he's referencing, especially in verse 44, the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament. That's those three parts there, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. He's talking about the entire Old Testament. And he says, you want to know what it really is about? You want to know ultimately what the story of Noah and these other stories are all about? It's all about me. It's all about Jesus. And so as they were on the road, Jesus, for an hour or two, he shared story after story, passage after passage about he, how he is the fulfillment of the entire Bible. And friends, though we don't know exactly what he said, during this series, we're going to get a glimpse of perhaps some of the things that he shared as we look at this story of the book uh, of Noah. And in this story, what we'll see is ultimately our big idea is this, that Jesus brings salvation and new creation through judgment. That's ultimately what we'll see is that Jesus, yes, he's in there in Genesis 6 through 9. He brings salvation and new creation through judgment. Let's pray and see why that's such good news. Father, we thank you that we do have hope in Jesus. That in in the middle and in the midst of judgment that we deserve, that is rightly, justly due to me, to us, Father, that you promised that you would send Jesus, and even in this passage of a story of a big old boat and a bunch of animals and a bunch of death, that you point us to Jesus, that Jesus is shadowed in so many things. Father, I pray that you would empower me to preach your gospel powerfully and clearly this morning. And I pray just as we do every week for a missional partner, Father, I pray for Morningside Church in Metro Atlanta. Father, for for Pastor Christian White there as they are celebrating one year of replanting as a church. Father, I pray that, that you would continue to stir up a culture of witnessing. Father, that through that they would see new life conversions in their church and that there would be spiritual growth and spiritual hunger in their church. Father, do that in Metro Atlanta. Would you do that right here, right now? and Newport News amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and jump into Genesis chapter 6. We'll get to verse 1 here in just a second. Last week, it took me about 39 minutes to preach 23 verses, and I chose four chapters today. So you can do the math. We'll probably be done by Tuesday. We'll we'll see exactly how long this takes. Don't worry, it won't take quite that long. Anyway, jump in Genesis 6 verse 1. It says this when when man began to multiply on the face of the land again there's probably millions some would even say billions perhaps of people on the earth it is vastly populated and it says and daughters were born to them it says verse 2 the sons of god that's important underline that saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose then the lord said my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years which is why in general people don't live that long anymore if you read in genesis 1-5 through they live significantly longer uh, but then at this point there is this restraining of our years why Well, keep reading verse four. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God, they showed up there again. Remember I told you to underline that. The sons of God came into the daughters of man. That means they had sexual relationships. That's what that means, come into them of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw, here is really the summary, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts, Not some, not some of the time, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what is going on here? When he talks about nephilim and the sons of god really what is happening well there's actually a lot of theories even within conservative theology of what these sons of god are or perhaps perhaps they are descendants of one of noah's children maybe uh, maybe they are actual kings and they are marrying pagan wives perhaps they're even angelic beings uh, that are really demons that are marrying and having relationships with other people and i know that third one sounds really weird but the reality is There was a talking snake on page three of the Bible. So that's not as weird as we in Western eyes might originally think. Now, the reality is all three of those options are possible, and they don't really change too much about what our story is today. So it doesn't matter too much which one you pick. But the reality is this. Here's the bottom line. They are running rampantly with sexual sin. Like they have gone out of God's standard of of what marriage and what sex looks like. That they are now perverting God's standard of one genetic man, one genetic female, that they are within the bounds of a marriage covenant, that they are there then and only then uh, having sexual relationship. But they are perverting that in every way that you can imagine. I don't have to go into the details of what that potentially means, but they're perverting that. And now because of that, it's not just that they are perverting these, these sexual relationships, but you see in verse 12 that now violence is running rampant, that they have these anger issues that are now even going out and that they're destroying other, other people. You see violence, you see murder, it's just running rampant that ultimately, what does it say there in verse 5? That evil is everywhere, that all of their intentions, everything that they do, everything that they think, it's always evil all the time. And it's easy on one hand to say, wow, I really wonder what that looked like. And that's a fair thing to wonder. But ultimately, this really points us to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Where Jesus says that you want to know really what it looks like if you commit adultery and murder. It's if you have lusted in your heart, then you've already committed adultery. That if you have anger in your heart, that you have already committed murder. Now, it seems in this passage that they actually are fully doing those actual physical acts, too, but that even in their heart, that's where it began. Which, friends, isn't that true of you and me today? That, yes, I think that we can see a lot of these things even in our culture, but even in my heart, even in your heart, we see that it's not just them and look at those horrible things that they're doing, but it's me and it's you. It's right now. It's on Tuesday afternoon. It's on Thursday night that I sin in these ways too, and so do you. And the reality is of this passage is that sin brings judgment. It requires it. It demands judgment. In fact, keep keep reading after verse 5. It says in verse 6, And the Lord, Yahweh, regretted, underline that word, that's really important, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him. To his heart, It says the Lord regretted. Now there's two types of regret. There's a regret when you don't know that something's going to happen. That's not what it's talking about here. God is, is all knowing. This is a type of regret when you know that something's going to happen. It's like college students. When you go to the cafeteria at school and you're like, I know this is not going to be that good, and then, but you still go. Right? You still go, and then afterwards you regret it. right? Because You're like, it really wasn't that good. It's that kind of regret. You know it's going to happen, but you still maybe, okay, hopefully it won't, but it, you know already. You, you've seen that story play out. God knew that this was going to happen. But he had a regret that led to an emotion. And what was that emotion? It said it at the end of verse 6. That it grieved God's heart. Scholars say that this word for grief here is a word that some of you have experienced. It's a grief that a spouse experiences when their spouse cheats on them. When someone commits adultery ultimately against you. That God is saying that they've cheated on me. I've been only ever always faithful and they have only ever always been unfaithful and evil and wicked. And ultimately it says, corrupt later in the passage it's it's the exact opposite of what god said in genesis chapter one time and time and time again that creation was good that it was good that it was good that mankind was very good and now it's evil and corrupt and wicked it's it's this decreation already and friends the reality is that when you and i sin we too grieve the heart of god that we're being unfaithful to him. Because we, the church, are described as his bride and he and Jesus are our groom. That when we sin, it's not just some small problem. It's not just some oopsie. No, it's that we have cheated on God. As as I mentioned last week in in our sermon that theologians call it cosmic treason. That it's not just saying, I I, I want to do this because it'll make me feel good. No, it's saying, I wanna do this because God, I don't believe that your way actually is right. I don't believe that your way actually will lead to my satisfaction. I think this will make me happy. I think this will relieve my tension. I think this will ease my pain. It's saying, I want your throne. And so, friends, because of that, we have sinned against a good and infinite God. And because of that, there is judgment. Our God, yes, is a loving, compassionate, and merciful God. We see that really clearly in this passage. We'll get there in a moment. But before we can really appreciate the compassion and mercy of God in this passage, we have to see the justice of God. And for some of you, the justice of God is, you see it as the good news that it is. Because some of you in this room, stats are really clear, would say that you have experienced incredible injustices in this world. Perhaps it is because of a spouse cheating on you. Perhaps it's through abuse in a variety of ways. Perhaps it's ways that certainly all of us experience, which is things around us, whether it's right uh, immediately around us or certainly on the news, that we see injustices in the world. And friends, the justice of God, the judgment of God is good news. It's that I can't do a dang thing about it. But you know what? God will one day. And that's great news. But friends, in the midst of our sin, when we see that we have a righteous God who, because of our sin, we deserve judgment too. Friends, it's frankly horrible news. It's frankly the worst news because it it deserves an infinite debt, and it's one we can't pay. And that's where we find ourselves in the story of Noah. But thankfully, there is hope and there is a turn. It says this in verse 8. Don't worry, we'll speed up. But Noah found favor. Another word for that would be grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a a righteous man, a blameless man in his generation. Not sinless, we see that in chapter 9, we'll get there a little later. But Noah, he walked with God. Pointing back to Genesis 3 when it says Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the cool of the day. Verse 10, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Great names, by the way, if you're hoping to have children one day. Hopefully we can see little Ham, Shem, Japheth walking, running down the uh, kids' hall, that'll be great. Um, But what we see here is in the midst of judgment that God brings salvation. That it's not just in, you know, he had to bring judgment and so I guess he'll save people. No, that what we see in this passage, ultimately, is that salvation is actually through judgment. And why it's needed is because our God is a God of justice. And the question, just as we saw last week at the beginning of our series, is the question is, who will ultimately pay for your sin debt? Who will be ultimately judged? Will it be you? Or as we'll see in this passage, will it ultimately be Jesus? You know, what we see is Noah and his three sons, his family, which, by the way, we never hear that Noah's family are righteous but that Noah is, but that God, he shows him great grace. And then you know the story, right? Just to summarize the rest of chapter six, God tells him, hey, I'm going to destroy the earth. Everyone is wicked, there's always corrupt, always evil, all the time, I'm gonna destroy the earth. And so man, you need to build a boat, a really big boat, an ark, right? It's half the size of of a cruise liner today. It's absolutely massive. It's three stories tall. It's got this window all around. It's got a door on the side. It's absolutely massive. You and your family, you're going to be in there, Noah. And as well, you're going to have two of every kind of animal, all the unclean animals. You're going to have seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, those that you can sacrifice and those that you can eat. He says, that's what's going to fill up this boat. And if you're wondering, there's all sorts of questions, by the way, in, the book of, in this, this uh, story of Noah, all sorts of questions. You're like, how would all the animals fit? Well, first of all, if you take just the volume that's in there, about 125,000 animals could have filled up the whole thing. Which means if you give them some wiggle room, around 35,000 animals re- reasonably could have been in this ark. It's this massive boat. And why is it going to come? It's because God is going to flood the earth. And we'll see what exactly that means and why later. But notice something important. I hope you've already picked it up, that you see these threads throughout the entire story of Noah, of decreation. That it started off, again, in Genesis 1, saying everything is good, 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 and now everything is evil and corrupt. But as well, you, you see that in Genesis chapter 1, how does God create? Just by speaking it to be. But here, what does God do? He says, Noah, you're going to build this ark. It's interesting. Why doesn't God just say it? Here's an ark. Go ahead. Get in, buddy. We're going to destroy the earth. Why doesn't he do that? In fact, it tells us that it takes Noah 100 years to build this ark. That's a long time. Why does he do that? Friends, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that ultimately God does this because he's patient. God takes 100 years, and really Genesis chapter 5, which might look like a really boring list, and in some ways it kind of is, of names, but ultimately it's telling us that God waited, in fact, 1,000 years. Leading up to this moment of sinful generation after generation, and now he's talking to Noah and he says, take 100 years to build this, because I want to give people the opportunity to repent and believe. Friends, already here, you're seeing this thread of God's grace and his patience. And for those like Michael here and others who have repented and believed the gospel, you know that God has been so patient with you. I just know in my story, all the mess that I've done, and how patient God is with me, that he would save a sinner like me. And I know that there's people in your life, there's people in my life that still don't know Jesus. Jesus. And you might ask, why don't they know Jesus? And, 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 and perhaps more than that, when you see injustice in the world that you experience and around you, and you might say, God, where in the world are you? Do you care? Do you see? And in the midst of Noah, Peter tells us that when you see injustice in the world, remember that Jesus was patient for you. And he has not come back because he is being patient for those that still don't know Jesus. Maybe for you. Maybe the reason Jesus hasn't come back is because someone like you hasn't repented and believed yet. Friends, today, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin and look to, as we'll see in a moment, our ark of salvation in Christ. But what we see is that Noah actually goes through with this. He builds this big old boat. Jump to Genesis chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says this Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. He's not perfect, no, but he is ultimately. Why does Hebrews say that he is righteous? Why is he declared righteous? It's because he's trusting in what God said. Really, Noah is saved not because he's a perfect dude, not because he's got everything together, because we'll see in Genesis chapter 9, as soon as Noah gets off the boat, he gets hammered drunk and he's rolling around naked for everyone to see. Don't believe me? Read it, Genesis chapter 9. That's exactly what happens. This dude is not perfect, but he is saved in the same way that you and I are. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. But here, Noah, it says, he was saved. God says, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Verse 2, Take with me seven pairs of all the animals, male and, fe- male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. Again, what I shared already. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. He says, Take this sampling, really, of the animals. Take your family. Verse 4, Because in seven days I will send rain on the earth, Forty days, forty nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And we know ultimately that this is what happens, right? That God does. He brings this flood, we'll talk about it in a moment, but everyone is blotted out from the ground. Every animal and every person dies. And I'll be honest, when I first read this, I'm like, that is ridiculous. This is insane. God, how could you do this? And friends, that actually is the right response, but not in the way that you might think. Of that, this is insane. This is ridiculous. This is scandalous. The scandal is not that God would wipe everyone out. Friends, the scandal, the ridiculous, truth of the gospel is that God would save anyone. It's that God would allow anyone to be saved. Because in my sin, I have sinned against that good and infinite king. And I have a sin debt that I can't pay, and so do you, and so does everyone else. And because of the pervasive nature of sin, it quite literally ruins and infects everything. And God here, in this decreation story of the book of, of this uh, story of Noah, He in His grace and in His mercy, He saves Noah and his family. What amazing grace, friends, for those that repent and believe that there is hope, there is salvation, that Jesus saves sinners like you and me. God says, I will blot all of them out. Get in the boat, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. He brought the animals. We don't know how he brought the animals. Again, the Bible is full of supernatural things. There's a lot of questions that we should and can ask the Bible. Don't waste your time with dumb questions. The fact is, the animals got there somehow, miraculously. But Noah did all of this. And what we see afterwards is then seven days later, the rain and the storm, it started. It started, and it says, those that entered, male and female, all of them, this is verse 16, jump ahead. They went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut them in. Again, remember, it has this door on the side. We'll see why that's so important here in a moment. But they get into this boat, into this ark, and it says, verse 21, jump ahead. All flesh died that moved on the earth birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures, the swarm of the earth, and all mankind. Verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Notice again this tying back to Genesis chapter one. What does it say in Genesis one? That Adam, how does he come to life? That God, he breathes life into his nostrils. Now that life is taken out. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. It's this decreation of all of these things you see in Genesis 1. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. Verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. It tells us that exactly what God said would happen did happen. That the earth that it was wiped clean, that God sent this storm. And it's not storms like we experience, you know, like we can have some really big storms. In fact, if you've lived here for a long time, you've experienced that, especially if you're like in Picosin or Hampton, like you've experienced whether it was Hurricane Matthew, especially with Isabel, like some of you, 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 had, you lost power for weeks with those, right? Like th- that was horrible storming, horrible flooding, like it absolutely impacts us. But frankly, that's nothing compared to what they experience. It's not like in the movies either, right? Like, there's all sorts of famous like movies for this, right? Whether it's like Noah uh, with uh, you know Russell Crowe, like you have Maximus and then Hermione Granger there in there on the ark, apparently as well. You have uh, you have Michael Scott from The Office. He's got his own uh, Noah story too. It's great. Um, but my personal favorite my personal favorite, it has to be the Hallmark miniseries from the 90s, Noah's Ark. Anybody seen that? Anybody want to admit it? I'm raising my hand. I watched it too. I watched it in preparation for this sermon this weekend. And I just want to tell you, it is by far the best uh, account. Uh, Noah, just spoiler alert, gets attacked by pirates at the end. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a blast. Um, this story is nothing like that, right? Like, it's, it's not cute and fuzzy. It's certainly not the story that shows up in a lot of kids' Bibles, and it's really not all these versions that have all of these extra details. No, it, it's this sad, broken story about the sinfulness of the world and about the righteous wrath and judgment that is represented through the waters, metaphorically and literally, That they are terrified as they're in this boat because it's not just, it's just raining for 40 days and 40 nights, which would be bad enough. No, friends, it's this idea that the entire world is exploding with water. That it is the hardest rain you've ever experienced times a million for 40 days and 40 nights that out of the ground and out of perhaps even volcanoes exploding like the whole nine tsunamis and tornadoes you can think of every story right like this is like shark sharknado times a million right like this is what this is it's insane for 40 days and 40 nights and obviously they are terrified in this boat But this boat ultimately is their salvation which friends foreshadows us to how we are saved that just as noah is saved by faith in god trusting in him that we too are saved by faith not in an ark not in a boat but in the ark of our salvation the ark of our safety which is jesus himself friends that as we trust in christ look looking to him who died the death that we deserve on the cross that took judgment, all of the watery judgment that we deserve on ourselves. And friends, he took it, all of it, every drop of that judgment. And he died in our place. In that, he paid our sin debt to God the Father in full, that anyone, because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, anyone who repents and believes the gospel. Friends, yes, our sin is judged, and it is paid for, but it's not paid for by us, it is paid for by Jesus, and it is paid for in full. And that's the great news of the story of Noah. It's that God saves sinners through the ark of salvation, ultimately pointing us to the ark of salvation, Jesus. And friends, notice that what keeps them inside this boat is that God himself shut the door and he keeps it sealed shut. Friends, just as Jesus tells us in the book of John that he himself is the door, the door to salvation, and that no one can snatch us away, no one can take us away, no one takes away our salvation, that God saves us and he keeps us faithful to the end. Friends, in this we already see these shadows, we already see these themes, we also already see these threads that God is bringing salvation. And so God, friends, he is being patient. He is being patient for Perhaps you, have you looked to Christ and to Christ alone, the ark of salvation, through faith to save you? We see that ultimately that God, he does this decreation story. Of everything that has breath in their lungs, it's now gone. Every type of animal, just as you see in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis, at the very end of Genesis 7, verse 24, it says, That after the 40 days and 40 nights, and now the water is 22 feet above the highest mountains in the earth, it says the water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. For about a half a year, so you have 40 days, about a month of this horrible cataclysmic storm, then for about half a year, the water just rested above all the mountains. And what we see in Genesis 1, in that original creation story, is that when God created, that's what it looked like. It was this watery chaos and God himself then comes in and creates. We see in Genesis chapter one verse two that what happens is that the spirit is hovering above the ground it says. And we see glimpses of that now as judgment doesn't just bring salvation, but it brings new creation. Check it out here verse one of chapter eight. You have this watery chaos. It's covered the earth. God has decreated his world. But it says, verse 1 But God remembered Noah. He remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow. Wind represents the spirit of God here, that just as in Genesis 1 2, God is now recreating. He is bringing new creation over the earth. And the waters, because of it, subsided. That, friends, here God is beginning his new creation. He's beginning now with what we'll see is we need another Adam. Adam failed. The original Adam, he brought sin into the world through the garden. We need another Adam. We need Adam 2.0. Who will it be? But it says, jump to verse 14, that in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth dried out. The reason that's important, by the way, and there's multiple markers throughout Genesis 6 through 9 that tell you very specific times that this happened, is because this actually happened. It's because this is an actual moment, in actual time, space, and history. What you see, actually, in archaeology is that there are other creation, excuse me, there are other Noah-like stories in ancient history. In ancient Near Eastern history, you see these stories happen, but they have radically different theological implications. What that means is, here and there, is that This is a real story. And what happened on this specific day is that the earth, it dried out. And then you know what happened, right? Like leading up to that, there was this whole event with Noah trying to feel out like how, like can we go back on the earth, right? He he sends this dove, right? You've heard this before, and he sends the dove and the dove goes back and forth. It finds an olive branch representing peace. And there, the olive branch is found out of this new shoot and they know, okay, it's almost time. The earth, it's dried out. And then verse 15 and 16, God said to Noah, go out from the ark. You and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. You've been in here now, we know from Scripture, for an entire year. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh. Birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth. And you remember this from Genesis 1. He says, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Here, God is bringing this new creation. He is recreating his world. And then it says in verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. You're asking these questions of, as you're reading the text of God's recreating. Adam messed everything up. He brought sin into the world. And and, and Noah apparently is blameless. He's sinless. He's righteous before God. Is he the second Adam? Is he the long promised son? Is he going to be the snake crusher? Maybe. Verse 20 tells us that Noah, he starts to do things that maybe the second Adam would do. He built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. And he offered burnt offerings on the altar. He's bringing a sacrifice to God. But then it tells us, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. There's this amazing good news. Maybe Noah is the promised one. Maybe he's the one that will bring us salvation. But why is it that God says that he won't destroy? Is it because of Noah's sacrifice? Is it because of Noah's righteousness? Now God says, I'm not going to do that because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So because of that, neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Verse 22, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, it won't cease. God says, you want to know why I'm not going to destroy the world in this way again? It ain't because of Noah. It ain't because of something he did. It's because if I was to keep doing this, I would do this every day, every year. Because everybody is still evil. It didn't fix anything. And God knew this. But in this, he's not trying to communicate, well, now Noah is the one. He's the salvation. No, the story of Noah is to show us that salvation is through judgment. That just as the ark went through the judgment waters and just as Jesus went through the judgment on the cross in our place, that's where salvation is. It's not found in Noah. It's not found in this family. It's not found in their good faith. Friends, it's found in Jesus. But here we now are asking the question, if, if Noah is not the second Adam, if he's not the one who's going to save the world, then who is it? If Noah's the one that soon after is going to be sinning, again, rolling around drunk naked, if that's what's going to happen, then who is the second Adam? How will we be saved? If we have evil only always in our intentions of our heart, we need someone to save us that isn't evil, that isn't like Adam, that isn't like Noah. We need someone perfect, and we need someone to take the judgment that we have, and we need them to pay it for us. Friends, we've already seen it's Jesus, but we'll see so clearly in probably the most famous part of the passage. Jump all the way to chapter 9, starting in verse 8, where we'll see ultimately why there is hope. And there is hope in a second Adam. And his name's not Noah. No, it's Jesus. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant, my promise, this promise relationship with you and your offspring after you. It's for us as well. We see later it's an everlasting covenant. It's still good today. God promised it and it will happen. With every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth, with you as many as came out of the ark, for it is, uh, it is for every beast of the earth. Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall a flood, there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. You know this, that I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it should be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You ever wondered what's up with this whole rainbow thing? Like, I'll be honest, like, as a kid, I kind of almost felt like this was an Aesop's fable, right? Like, apparently that's why we have rainbows. Good night, kid. Like, what's up with this bow? What's interesting is if you actually look at this in Hebrew, which is what it's originally written in, is that there are words for, for rainbow, but that's not the word that's used here. Now, don't be confused. He is talking about the rainbow, right? When you see a rainbow, or man, when you see a double rainbow, like... But when you see a rainbow, like, yeah, we should remember this promise that God made. But it's not the word for rainbow. In Hebrew, this is actually the word for war bow. It's the idea of a warrior who brings righteous judgment against his enemies, that he would strike with arrows with this war bow against them, the judgment that was due to them, destroying them. And what God says metaphorically and quite literally to us as well. As I have hung my bow in the sky, I have brought judgment on the earth in this way, and now it's hung in the sky. And friends, just think about it. How is the bow now pointed? He said, I'm not pointing it down at you anymore. I will never bring this flood to you anymore. In fact, it is pointed up. It is pointed not at you. It is now pointed at the very throne room of God, pointed to the true and better second Adam foreshadowing how Jesus himself would take the judgment of the world, would take the judgment arrows that is due to you, that is due to me, and he says, I will take all of it. And I will take it in your place. Friends, so that every time when we see this, we see this promise that, yes, we are saved through judgment, but it is judgment that Jesus takes in our place that we do not have to take if we just repent and believe the gospel. Friends, the story of Noah is full of creation and decreation. It is full of shadow after shadow, foreshadowing of threads, pointing us to not some dude in a boat and some cute animals. It is a story that we deserve judgment. But God is so patient for you and me, and he has sent the ark of our salvation. He has sent the door who seals us and seals us and saves us by faith and faith alone. That all those who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, that they would be saved. Friends, that is the good news of the story of Noah. And as Jesus was on the road with those two disciples, perhaps he told a story just like that, pointing how Jesus is the fulfillment, not just in Noah and not just in the New Testament, but the entire Bible is all about him. And so for you, perhaps you are here and you've never repented and believed. Perhaps you're here and you've realized that I have judgment due to me. I've never repented and believed. Friends, Jesus has not come back yet. He has not brought his second coming where he will bring ultimate new creation in the heavens and earth because he is waiting for you to be saved. May today be the day Because just as we saw in the story of Noah, at one day that patience will run dry. Friends, may today be the day. And for those that are in Christ, just as Noah did, don't delay. Obey Jesus and tell others about the coming judgment of Christ. Tell them to repent and believe. Tell them about the grace and the favor that Jesus has shown you through grace, through faith alone. Friends, tell them of the good news, that salvation comes through judgment and it brings new creation in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We are so thankful that we have been saved. Father, I pray that today that you would save anyone who has not repented and believed the gospel. That you and your kindness, that you have been so patient for them, Father, would today be the day. And, Father, for those that have been saved, that have repented and believed, Father, would you help us, would you help me to take this seriously, that we would point people to the ark of salvation, that we would point them to the one who has taken the arrows of the war bow on himself, Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice in our place. And, Father, we ask that Jesus would come soon, that he would bring justice, and that we would see the ultimate, the true and better new creation that's brought through the second Adam, Jesus, when he returns.